Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenthood, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris. Hello and welcome to episode four of Sprogcast, in which we're looking at the way we communicate risk when we're talking to parents-to-be and how the language we use impacts on expectations of birth. Sprogcast is brought to you by Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga. You can find them at pinterandmartin.com. Coming up today, we've got an interview with doula, writer and co-chair of the birth rights organisation, Rebecca Schiller. And for an extra treat today, we're also speaking with Laura Dodsworth about the reality project i'm karen hall and i'm mark harris we hope you enjoyed episode three of Sprogcast when we were talking about compassionate care in midwifery do you know we asked for comments and and we got some on our facebook page uh, that page by the way is facebook.com forward slash Sprogcast including a lovely one from our very first Sprogcast interviewee uh, maddie mcmahon who says just finally got around to listening to this one. Thanks for another blinder, you two. Gorgeous to hear the wonderful Sheena Byron's dulcet tones and to be re-inspired and invigorated by all your topics of discussion. Thanks for that, Maddie. It's really nice to hear from her. Um, we had another comment from midwifery student Sarah Hadrell, who says, I'm so delighted to have stumbled across broadcast. I heard Mark speak at Kingston University on Tuesday and I was so inspired by his talk. I did a little Googling and ended up here. What great discussion. So very interesting and thought provoking. I love that you discuss research and the strength of the research. I'm at the end of my midwifery training, writing my dissertation. So the value of strong evidence was especially relevant for me. I also love that there were lots of topics discussed rather than just one or two in great, great depth. It allowed a great pay. Well done on a great show. Oh, that's nice. Sarah's coming to the end of her training. Uh, meanwhile, a new midwife trainee, uh, Jane Louise, also commented, uh, I'm finding this broadcast so informative and they give me food for thought. It's a lot to think about as I embark on my journey as a student midwife, but I feel very privileged to have this knowledge and insight right at the beginning of my training. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sarah. Yes, it's really nice to have some comments and some feedback. We also had a few people offer suggestions and we've had requests for some postnatal stuff. So we might um, look back at that. I think originally we planned to alternate between birth stuff and postnatal stuff. And we've, we haven't quite done that, have we? So that's one to plan for next time. We were also thrilled when Martin from publishers Pinter and Martin got in touch to offer to sponsor the show, which will enable us to sign up for SoundCloud and distribute the podcast more widely. We can cheerfully report that episode three was played 112 times. Uh, Pinter and Martin just happens to be Mark's publisher, and I gather, Mark, that you have some news on the book front. It's done, Karen. Obviously, we're in the process of editing the thing and uh, getting it exactly as I want it. But uh, now I'm excited that the content is, there's a uniqueness about it and I think it's uh, serving a little bit of a gap in what's out there, particularly when it comes to men and uh, same-sex partners who are supporting their lovers and partners through birth. That sounds really great, and I'm looking forward to having it available in antenatal classes for people to take away and read. I will encourage them to buy it as well, of course. I've noticed that uh, Martin of Pinter and Martin managed to get himself banned from Facebook for publishing the front cover of the Bear Reality book. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. There were <gasps> boobs. Oh, well, I did something similar. I, I put a picture of uh, a birthing baby with um, the, the man was in the pool supporting his partner. And there was nothing graphic about it. I mean, it, 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 but yeah, I got 
my account suspended for a while. Well, our idea of graphic and Mark Zuckerberg's idea of graphic clearly differ wildly. Uh, it's not easy decisions that they have to make, and I have some, you know, some empathy for how difficult it is out there. But it, there does seem to be such incongruence. You know, you can see such barbaric pictures, and then simple breastfeeding pictures seem to be a scandal. So. Yeah don't get it and you are of course eternally generous of spirit in having empathy with oh, I, <laughs> I think there is a real tendency particularly in the uh, social media area of caricaturing the opposite view to yours so you know you have your view you have your beliefs which you know um is the lowest form of evidence really the stuff that you believe in but anyway so you have your your beliefs and then you set up the the opposing belief in and and the way that you do it isn't really a um a reflection of of the of the breadth of the opposing view so i have in recent years taken to really understanding or doing my best to understand the other position uh, to the point where i can convey it so that the person who holds that position recognizes it and says yeah that is what i think mm. And, and that that's opens up more possibilities for, for me, yeah. you know, to see things in new ways. And yeah. uh, That's a really great place to be. And it Gota, says a lot more about your capacity for self-awareness and reflection, really, than about any of these warring factions. But yeah. I totally get what you mean. And I, I've been spending a lot of time lately with people who are very passionate about breastfeeding um, in a place where I can remember being. Yeah. But the years of training and years of practice have just brought me to a perhaps a little bit of a gentler place oh i get that kind of place don't get me wrong I, I i think there is there is a lot of scope for a sense of passion when it comes to inequalities so for example the the, the inequality of resources available to promote breastfeeding up against these formula companies with that their that their power and their very sophisticated understanding of how the human psychology works and their ability to manipulate that for their own ends. In the face of mounting evidence that breastfeeding, uh, and I don't want to say breast is best because I'm quite sure the feeding companies came up with that slogan yeah. because it sets people at odds. But, you know, we know we've got a mammalian history and, you know, rooted in our mammalian history is feeding our children. And uh, I think a passion for breastfeeding is serving mankind. And if that sounds grandiose, I make no apologies. It's okay for you to be grandiose. And I think this is something that, um, on going back to birth, that our interview with Rebecca is going to be touching on quite a lot. And we don't have that yet, but by the magic of, of technology, it'll exist by the time people listen to this. Yeah, no, that's going to be good. I, I spoke to her at a conference. In fact, she was talking about this very stuff when it comes to birth, that an engagement with those who are saying something different um, to what she believes and feels quite strongly about has broadened her awareness. And uh, that's a good thing in my book. Yeah. Having very briefly just mentioned the Bear Reality Project, we've got our interview with uh, Laura Dodsworth just coming up. I've managed to catch up with Laura Dodsworth, who is the creator of the Bear Reality Project, and I've got her beautiful book on my desk in front of me. Hi, Laura. Hello. 
Would you like to tell us about the Bear Reality Project? Yeah, sure. Um, I spent two years photographing and interviewing women about their breasts, their breasts, their bodies, their lives. And the book is a collection of 100 photographs. And alongside each photograph of a woman's breasts is her story. So in her own words, she talks about how she feels about her breasts and her body and, and her life. And the breasts are a catalyst for talking about different aspects of our lives as women, like growing up and sexuality, breastfeeding obviously comes into it quite a lot, um, relationships, breast cancer and health and body image and, and lots of subjects really. Yes, it's really wide ranging. When we talk about breasts, we can access these really intimate and I think quite powerful conversations about aspects of our lives as women. And I brought in women from all different backgrounds, from a Buddhist nun to a burlesque dancer and from strippers to social workers, teachers, stay at home mums, really wide range of women. And they've got such diverse feelings and opinions and experiences. There are some quite strong themes as well. Yeah, what did you what did you think were the strong themes? Well, obviously being a breastfeeding counselor, I noticed how many people commented on their experience of that and how they'd felt about breastfeeding and sometimes how how breastfeeding changed the way they felt about their breasts. Yeah, that, I think um I think that is quite a common theme in the book. In general, women who have breastfed their babies have undergone quite a revolution and a transformation in how they feel about their breasts. And maybe also their, their bodies in general. I mean, birth and having children is so epic and life-changing, isn't it? But it was interesting. I did find it easier to involve women who were pro-breastfeeding than women who hadn't breastfed. And that was a shame. I would have liked to include more, more women who couldn't or didn't want to breastfeed when they had children. There are some, but it seemed harder to get women like that involved. Why do you think that was? I think women who don't breastfeed are concerned about being judged and maybe that would lead them that, that would make them less likely to take part in this project, even though there would be no judgment on my part. I think that can be part of it. Maybe they feel like they've got issues to do with their breasts, to do with not breastfeeding. And I, I in general, women who who had insecurities or issues were also less likely to take part. It was harder to find women who had insecurities. Yeah. It's a shame, but it's it is interesting just that part of the project, I guess. Yeah, as well. Absolutely. And how's it been received? Well, really, really great actually. Um, I've had I've had really nice feedback from the women who took part. People feel quite proud to be involved with it, which is really lovely. Fantastic reviews. So people who backed the project on Kickstarter have sent me some lovely messages. I mean, the, the first message I had was from a man in the US who backed it. And he sent me this really long and personal message and it, it just made me cry. It was so moving about how eye-opening he'd found it and he'd always liked women and had a great relationship with his wife. But now he saw things with new eyes, a new perspective and just went through all the emotions that it brought up in him. So, yeah, very touching responses from people. Gosh, that must have made the whole thing worth it just by itself. So, so much um yeah some people have taken the time to send me very thoughtful personal opinions about the project by email and uh, they do make it all worthwhile definitely great and what what are you doing now well I'm actually still quite busy with Bear Reality um I'm speaking at a few events coming up and I wrote an article last week I took a bit of time because I got blocked on Facebook for sharing the book cover 
and it's not exactly the first time that Bare Reality's hit problems on Facebook or censorship in general. And I felt moved to write a whole HuffPost blog about it. So I think I think there'll be aspects of the project that keep me busy for a while. Otherwise, I am starting a new project, and um, I've been doing some planning and research around it for months actually. And I'm going to start it properly in September. So that's exciting. That is exciting. Yeah. Um, and if you want to let us know at the time, we're more than happy to talk about it on Sprogcast. Oh, thank you. I would, I would absolutely love to. Yeah, it's um, it also takes the human body as a starting point for a conversation about, about our our lives and our place in the world. So, yeah, hopefully you find it interesting. Brilliant. That's right up our street. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, Laura. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, what a lovely woman. I, I met her at the ABM conference. You met everybody. I know. <laughs> OK, then, let's uh, have a look now at some of those news articles that have popped up in various places since the last episode. Um, you're going to kick us off with Harry Wallop. So this was just um, a little um, fluffy piece in The Telegraph uh, entitled Call the Midwife TV Gives Birth to a New Fad, But Where Are the Dads? Um, and it's looking at the way um, the various programmes like One Born Every Minute and Call the Midwife portray a lot about birth and motherhood and don't really um, seem to include much on the subject of fathers and fatherhood. Yeah, I saw it. Call the Midwife, nine million viewers, apparently. It's going to take us a while to get to that, isn't it? Call, call the Midwife assaults my sensibilities less mm. because it's a historic... Yeah. Um, look at um, maternity care and birth and of course that's why the blokes don't crop up much it kind of reflects a historic narrative that's what I thought was interesting about this criticism it seems to me to be historically accurate he's probably uninformed about the move towards men being present which according to Michelle O'Don who is a birthing god to me uh, he observed that within the early 70s that might become your catchphrase because you do say that in every episode about Michel Odant. <laughs> I'm missing his book launch, which is Do We Need Midwives? And knowing his writings very well, he's going to be saying, yes, we do. And he's going to be outlining what the qualifications of people going into midwifery probably should be from his perspective. And it will include things like having had a birth in, in, in a physiological context. And unless you've had a birth in that way, I think he may well end up saying, uh, that potentially would disqualify you in an ideal world. And I, I, I don't agree with him particularly on that. But his observations of how men came into the birth room in the early 70s. Just scrolling down that article, it, he's saying, um, quoting somebody saying, it's become culturally acceptable to denigrate fathers. What do you think? Well, whether it's den denigration or whether it's just the structures of birth, you know, Michelle Adant says birth has moved towards a more industrial model. And uh, we, we have structures around birth where men are seen as a, an intrusion. That research that looked at men's involvement with breastfeeding education, all the men in that context, or a lot of the men in that context said they felt like an appendage, an intrusion upon the process. Uh, I would argue that's because we, we haven't really explored new ways of preparing men and same-sex partners for that matter for what's going to happen but we do have evidence that it's great to get them involved and 
give them the information so that they can be supportive and they can have a function. I would argue that that's a no-brainer. You know, any anyone, Michelle O'Donnell says men probably be better off not being there, but that's, you know, that's a, a tide coming in that we're not going to roll back. Yeah. 95% of fathers are at the birth of their baby. So for me, it's about a man... He goes into a birth environment where the structures of birth are pretty testosterone soaked. You know, it's about looking for risk everywhere, eliminating all perinatal mortality as if that is a realistic goal. Trying to filter out for every risk. Yeah. Did you watch the YouTube video? This... I did. I, I loved that. I thought you would probably like it. But I was particularly interested in that description of antenatal care as basically risk assessment. And then Dennis Walsh saying um, that this kind of drive to eliminate the rare worst case scenario outcome is counterproductive because you can't reduce risk to zero. And it basically means that the birth environment pretty much is almost promising perfection. Of course it is. And, th and then people will go, yeah, one in a thousand. But if you're that one, it's on the basis that you can't eliminate the death of a baby in extremely rare cases, you're always going to have that one. Yeah. So so you're never going to get to a point where that kind of where people go, oh, yeah, but if you're that one and I have deep compassion for people that lose babies, you know, deep compassion. But that's an that's a goal that will never be reached. Yes. So absolutely not to belittle any of these horrible outcomes. Oh, God, no. That obstetrician, apart from his funky sideburns and his rather trendy khaki shirt, um, I, I thought what he had to say was a window into the soul of obstetrics, you know, and it, it's never lost on me that obstetricians are by profession surgeons, you know. And, that and did, it did come across, felt like it was a, an interesting addition to that particular video. But yes, that whole kind of drive to make everything safer and safer and cleaner and more clinical, counterproductive. Uh, counterproductive and not, not unexpected um, in, in the context of the male and female hormonal dance. When I spoke to Dennis about the differences in the endocrine dance in men and women, in the majority of men and women, he said, oh, be careful, because people have used this in a patriarchal way. There's no doubt that these things have been used in a patriarchal way. So we, they've been used to oppress women. There was a Guardian piece that I'll have to find the link to now, I mentioned it, about three weeks ago, that um, looked at anthropologist study of hunter-gatherer communities that hadn't changed much. And the anthropologist looking at what was going on came to the, the, the sort of like the extrapolation or tentative conclusions that prior to the growing of crops, societies were egalitarian based on function in the context of surviving. Yeah. And from an evolutionary development point of view, right, our bodies and neurophysiologists would have developed around our functions when it comes to survival, not unlike any other species of animal, for goodness sake. So the male of the species would have been out hunting and gathering. So his proprioception skills, the connections between the brain, the corpus callosum, all of those things developed in, 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 in different ways in order to facilitate him being good at that. Otherwise, the human species would have died out. And same for the female of the species, you know, certain neurophysiological adaptations that made us excellent at surviving as a community um, are in place. And because the, these evolutionary adaptations take so long to shift, 
we still have them in our neurophysiology. And then we have a, a birth structures that are predominantly influenced by the male hormonal dance. So this bloke comes into the birth environment. He hasn't got much idea about what to expect, but he's getting a sense that it's risky because the power holders around birth have the whole surveillance thing set up around eliminating risk. And then what happens is he, he's quite easily diverted from his focus on connecting with her because he's, you know, if he's informed, he knows what risks to look out for. She then gets jerked out of being able to lose herself to the birthing dance because she sees his rising anxiety levels. She almost becomes, she has to mother him in one sense, or she, she, she wants to protect him from what's going on. So like Michelle O'Donnell says, uh, when men were present, it seemed to work, but when they became participants, it didn't. And by participants, well, by participants, I, I intuit from having been around birth uh, for quite a while and watching men respond. It, it's when the man responds to his fight, flight, freeze response um, and then gets engaged as a mini obstetrician or mini uh, auditor of the obstetrician's behaviour. Yeah, and I think they want to have a function. It's right there being offered up to them as something that you can be doing is checking everything's okay. What about this article about, the, it's American, I think, is it, are hospitals the safest place for healthy women to have babies? An obstetrician thinks twice. It does, it might be American, but it does quote the birthplace study. It does, yeah, it, it referred to both. Well, this was actually, I found, saw it on Facebook, it was put up there by my cousin-in-law who's expecting Ooh. her second baby. This is um, something from IFL Science, and it's looking at basically the idea that's that's very much prevalent in the US particularly that it's safer to give birth in a hospital and yeah. we don't need to discuss it and then there's all this evidence suggesting that actually quite a lot of people might be safer outside a hospital and that doesn't necessarily mean at home no that could mean in a freestanding midwife-led unit from the um, stats that I've been looking at it seems like the freestanding midwife-led unit wins on every count yeah Dennis would Dennis, my friend, would definitely say that. His PhD was in birth, place of birth, and it, he is considered an expert, I guess, in, in the field. And he says that the birthplace study is probably the most significant study in the context of birthplace since the Peel Report in 1971. Mm -hmm. And he says that what makes it distinctive is this. Not only does it say it's as safe to give birth in a midwifery-led unit as a doctor-managed hospital. It's safer if you bring into that consideration the, and I was going to say unnecessary interventions, but if you bring into that considerations the interventions that a woman is far more likely to experience in the doctor-managed unit, a episiotomy, you know, the cup, um, uh, well, you know where it is, um, uh, ARM. <laughs> that was very... Uh... I didn't know what to say, euphemism, the cut, the perineum. You know. That's very delicate of you, Mark. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I don't like those euphemisms. You know, a midwife says, I'm going to cut you down there. Could you be a bit more specific? I think we're allowed to use medical terms here. Perineum, cut. Let's just say it. So it's very significant. But even the reporting of risks in that study perplexes me. You, you know, we've spoken about it before, but I'll mention it again. So having your second baby in a a midwifery-led unit, or at home for that matter, uh, is considered not risky and probably safer. 
three in a thousand birth incidents in that group. Okay. Yeah. Having your first baby. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. It's three times more risky is the way it's often put. Three so, times. So nine nine. thousand. Exactly. Yeah, this is using relative risk rather than the absolute risk, which is the information parents need to make a decision. Absolutely. Just scrolling down to um, further down this article, which I found fascinating. It says, why do hospitals mean more interventions? It comes down to risk perception. So we're basically looking at why are the statistics going to be higher in the hospital for the various interventions? And of course, you've got you've got your sceptics out there saying, well, of course, there's going to be more caesareans in a hospital because you can't do that at home. Um, so this obstetrician, um, Neil Shah, says is that his, his job is to get the baby delivered before it's too late. And he says, I'm working with ambiguous information, basically a human being. So he doesn't know how long labour should take for that person. But what he says, if I quote, fortunately, I can make sure this decision is never wrong. If the baby looks a little blue and lacklustre right after I do a C-section, I'm convinced I did it just in time. But if the baby is pink and vigorous after I do a C-section, I'm still convinced I did it just in time. Without evidence to the contrary, it's easy for me and many of my colleagues to believe that operating is always the right course of action. I find that really interesting because it's basically um, that self-affirming or self-confirming prejudice yeah, that he's using in his work bias, yeah. that that the birth skeptics accuse um, people like us of all the time. You know, we're, we're always filtering information through our cognitive biases. And an obstetrician who is, you know, a surgeon at heart, oh, I don't know whether that's fair, but uh, is going to be seeing things different differently from a midwife. We need to get an obstetrician on here. Cool. We've also got an article here from the Huffington Post. Susie Ashworth, why your birth is more important than your bugaboo. When I first read this, it was the tone of it that I didn't like. Mm -hmm. But I, I get what she's saying. You know, I think she's saying it's really important that you give as much time to preparing for the birth as you do um, accessorising the birth. Yeah, she's, she's basically ask, asking people to get informed so they can make decisions. Yeah. Um, that when I first read it, I, I thought I, I, I am interested in, in the language of challenge when addressed to a predominantly female audience. I, I think adopting the language of challenge to a female audience will will sideline and um, uh, exclude more people than it includes. I think there's a lot of the language in this article is, is quite exclusive. We don't live in a world of so much privilege that we all get to spend a lot of time choosing our pram. We've got a fabulous charity locally called First Days. They collect up um, all the used stuff, all the barely used newborn things, push chairs and baby grows and baths and Moses baskets, and then they redistribute it like a food bank for babies. Brilliant. It's beautiful and um, more, more power to it. Her, her passion for supporting women through the birthing process is beyond question. She's a passionate facilitator of not only women who are pregnant, but also uh, birth professionals that are seeking to um, deliver these kind of services and that bringing those two in harmony is, is a challenging task. Uh, I like the fact that she's pointing to birth education as something it would be a good idea for people to invest in yeah. and to gain access to anything they can uh, that's free and if they have the resources to look uh, for other 
opportunities, you know, i.e. hypnobirthing or the various other things that are available to prepare a woman, really. Yeah. I like that she um, frames it as positive birth experiences. She's using that word positive rather than natural. Yeah, I like that. I I posted a video, I think, last week about moralising. And I, I think when you have this um, polarised arguments about things, it, it's very it's very easy to fall into unconscious moralizing about what's best. And uh, I think that's worth avoiding. It's useful to talk about that. And I think um, that might be another thing that's going to come up with Rebecca or possibly a, a good topic for our whole broadcast because we can't get away from it in the area we work. People are, they have poles. They are fundamentalists, as you said earlier. Um, people are passionate about one thing or passionate about another thing. And it's very hard to be the person working in the middle saying, honestly, I'm not invested in whether you as an individual have whatever kind of birth or yeah. breastfeed or co-sleep yeah. or any of those things. I'm invested in whether society as a whole accepts those things as being positive. No, I get that. And that's helpful. People talk to me a lot about informed choice. But, you know, I'm convinced there's no such thing as purely objective informed cho informed information giving. Be because of the multi-level nature of communication, even if, you know, we're presenting the information about an option that we don't particularly endorse, um, our tone of voice, our body language, no matter how hard we work to, to, to try and tone down our inclinations, we can't help it leaking out. It, you know, it's where, why I would always give information verbally and in written form to, to women so that they can reflect upon it, think about it, talk about it with the people that they love and trust and then come to their own conclusion. And that leads on to language. You know, language is probably the one of the most important areas that that we need a, a sort of like a cultural transformation in the context of birth. I, I told a story at this conference the other week about when I did a return to practice six years ago and I was doing a, a booking appointment with a midwife who was my supervisor, you know, my mentor. And I opened up talking about blood tests and I said to this couple, oh, these are the blood tests that we invite you to take. And um, we invite you to take them for these reasons. And uh, after I said all that, I said, are you going to accept our invitation? Anyway, after the session, which I thought went really well, my midwife mentor said to me, invite them to take. <laughs> invite them to take. They might have said no. Uh huh. I, I was speechless, which you'd be surprised to hear, Karen. I would. I, I, I thought that was the point. I thought that was the point. She said, "But they might not take them." I said, "Well, that that will then be their response, their responsibility, their choice." Because you've told them why they're invited to take, and so they can exactly. They know why they're being invited. They can still choose not to. Exactly. But you see, I and I, I have compassion for my middle three colleagues that are that are functioning that in the structures that they are. Because they're going to be audited based on uptake of some of these services that are offered. And, and the auditing is fairly unforgiving. You know, so if you have so many women that are choosing not to have certain tests or screening, it then raises some, some flags around uh, how you're presenting the information. And that's a, that's a problem, I think. That's a challenge. I would think that's a good thing. 
enough people feeling strong enough in themselves and well enough informed to actually refuse an extra scan or whatever, good for them. You know, it goes back to uh, in the discussion we've had around how the NHS is insured in the maternity context. You know, it's an independent insurer who holds maternity is accountable for certain levels of accreditation. And those levels are audited often by unmedically trained folk who are responding to um, the fruit of stamps that are in the notes. So there's a, a template stamp printed in the notes if certain boxes are ticked. And then those sets of notes will either pass or fail the audit based on the ticking of the right boxes. And, and that puts an enormous pressure on my midwifery colleagues. It's, it's a very difficult place for them to be in. Oh, I have a lot of compassion for them. And finally today, Karen caught up with Rebecca Schiller, aka the Hackney Doula, uh, writer and co-chair of Birth Rights, the UK's only organisation dedicated to improving women's experiences of pregnancy and childbirth by promoting respect for human rights. Three cheers for birth rights. That's what I say. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Okay, so for today's episode of Sprogcast, we are chatting with Rebecca Schiller. Hi, Rebecca. Hi there, Karen. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Well, um, firstly, I guess I'm a mother. Um, I have two children. And um, through that, um, I became a doula. And um, I am still a slightly occasional doula. Um, and I also work with Doula UK on their um, board of directors. Um, most of my time at the moment is taken up with um, the human rights in childbirth charity that I co-chair, which is called Birthrights. And if you want to check us out, um, the website is birthrights.org.uk. And we're also on Twitter at birthrights.org. Um, so lots of work there, campaigning, um, offering training, um, and um, really just getting involved in um, women's rights in childbirth and reproductive rights more generally. Um, and I guess to um, finish off, I'm also um, interested in writing about these kind of issues and um, I guess we're going to talk a little bit more about um, some of the stuff I've written about uh, in this podcast, I imagine. Yes, we are. That's definitely the plan. And you've got an ebook. I do. It's available um, on Amazon and um, via the Guardian Shorts website and it's called All That Matters. Um, and if you um, find me on Twitter, I'm at Hackney Doula. The um, link to um, my ebook is in um, my little profile there. At one ninety nine, excellent value because it's so much packed into it. It's a really good read. Thank you. I think um, Birthrights is obviously a really, really important organisation doing crucial work. It's something, an area that's quite shocking to come into and realise that there's so much that needs to be done. Um, I was fascinated by the fact that you came to this from a feminist and women's rights point of view. So I was going to ask you first why why childbirth is a feminist issue. It's the fundamental feminist issue. I didn't think of myself particularly as a feminist um, before I became interested in childbirth, which I'm totally ashamed about. I did an English literature degree and I remember one of our first seminars, um, the male professor asked our seminar group um, to raise our hands if, if we were feminists and only one person raised their hand and it was the only boy in the room. Um, and I look back on that often with, with shame, but it was through 
getting involved in the birth world that I really realised the continual sort of inequalities that women face and also just how um, our lives are changed and shaped by our sort of reproductive capacities. Um, and in, in doing the research for, for my book and in, in working for birthrights, it, it sort of became apparent to me that the fact that um, women are treated differently from men and um, all the things from the you know the little small inequalities some really terrible things that happen here and across the world are based on the fact that we have this ability to bear children and um, we might not be interested in having children yet we might never have them we might not be able to have children we might be you know totally focused in the other direction but what makes us different is that we have this reproductive capacity so for me um, birth and pregnancy is kind of the ultimate feminist issue because if we don't get it right there how can we begin to assert our right to be treated as sort of human beings like any other throughout the rest of our lives so it's the the sort of central principle yeah and I, I know there are lots of other things and, and also that you know there's a lot of crossover between other inequalities and other priorities and other difficulties that women face so women from different um socioeconomic backgrounds experience birth in different ways um you know there's definitely an element of um you know ethnic minorities and different racial groups have these different experiences of um, childbirth and, and so there's a lot at play things cross over it's not the only thing that's important but but for me it's, it's something crucial to focus on and hasn't really been focused on certainly in in, in recent years um, as you know a feminist issue I think in, in the right way and, and what I'm really pleased about at the moment is I'm seeing lots of different groups beginning to take on childbirth as a feminist issue and, and Dennis Walsh um, and a few others wrote a brilliant article I think in Midders about um, why midwives should be feminist recently that's been widely shared and, and, and I think there's a, a, a real movement to, to bring the principles of feminism back into discussions of birth which I think is really positive. It really is. Dennis is great. I've got a YouTube clip which I've put on our Facebook groups saying um, that antenatal visits are basically a risk assessment process that virtually promises women a risk-free experience of birth. Yes, I was actually talking yesterday um, with a group, different people, academics and, and other organisations about the idea of risk and also the kind of um, the partner to risk, which is surveillance. And we were talking about how, and, and midwives are part of this meeting, how antenatal visits are much less about getting to know somebody, covering their needs and wants, and much more about safeguarding and risk assessment and categorization. This, obviously the screening that, that's done um, is, a, is a part of that. And increasingly um, midwives are saying that they feel there's a lot of sort of mandatory boxes that women have to, to sort of tick and agree with in order that they can be kind of correctly risk stratified. Um, and that doesn't necessarily make for the kind of care that women feel um, is safe in in, um, both a physical and also emotional sense. No, I was going to say, is that helpful to have that level of almost checking on women? For me, it's incredibly problematic. I, I think I appreciate that, you know, we have a big system we you know we have a high birth rate and there of course have to be measures in place to ensure that women are offered the kind of care that is most appropriate for their needs and some of that will be based on making clinical judgments and and offering them tests and some of that will be of course speaking to them and um offering them um, continuity of carer and and beginning to um develop a relationship with them having antenatal care very biased towards screening processes and tests and box ticking and seeing a different midwife 
at every appointment, we know from the evidence, A, it's not what women want, it's not how they feel comfortable, and it's not likely to make those who might not have the time or the money or the capacity to attend antenatal appointments to do that. And, and also, it, it's not necessarily going to, to imp improve um, outcomes. And um, I, th I think it's problematic, and particularly when we see increasing levels of social services being involved in cases where women are declining things, women are not attending antenatal appointments, women are making choices in childbirth. And, and at birthrights, we do get calls from women who feel that social services have been called in because they've made a, a choice that they feel is appropriate antenatally or, or in labour. Um, and we don't feel that's um, that's appropriate um, or, or fair to that women. That seems very paternalistic. Yes, it does seem very paternalistic. And of course, you know, on the flip side, midwives do have a responsibility to um, make sure they're identifying women who might need additional support and help but there's a difference between building a supportive relationship and um, surveillance. I was listening to some health visitors chatting at a clinic I was at the other day um, talking about their postnatal work and saying that basically 90% of it now is safeguarding. Yeah what's interesting to me is is the word safe in safeguarding. I think there's too much guarding and not enough safe. Women who are offered a named midwife who sees them antenatally and you know, in a dream world through labour and postnatally, you know, if they do have problems, if they do have difficulties, then that midwife is likely to pick that up and it is likely to help them keep safe and help them keep their baby safe. A whole range of different people sort of tag teaming and a health visitor being beamed in to do safeguarding doesn't feel very safe to me. It feels like a way of getting women to be feel backed into a corner. Um, and we know that that's not likely to, to make them feel um, able to divulge things to, to people who they should be building a kind of trusting relationship with. You're kind of talking about a, a bigger picture then because you're including the mother in that. It almost seems as though safeguarding is focused entirely on the needs of the baby and the needs of the mother are irrelevant to that. Well, indeed. And I think, you know, there's an increasing slew towards only focusing on the needs of the baby throughout the maternity system. And obviously we need to design a system that allows women and the healthcare professionals they choose to invite into their pregnancies and births to help them keep their babies as safe as possible. Prioritising one over the other seems to me completely counterintuitive. You know, one of the things that I, I sort of talk about in the book is that, you know, the vast, vast majority of women want to keep their babies safe. And it seems to me then that we need to design a system that allows women to do that, that supports them to do that, and that looks after them. Because this is a time when women really do need looking after. And, and if we're going to provide safe care for, for mothers and babies, then throughout pregnancy and birth, the focus has to be on providing the woman with respectful care and the chance to, to make the choices she needs to to keep her baby and her family safe. So who is saying, as your cleverly titled book implies, who is saying that all that matters is a healthy baby? I think it's become a sort of cultural assumption now, actually. I mean, I hear it from women themselves. Um, and, and normally it's said when they've just expressed something that makes it very clear that actually there's something 
that's happening to them that they they don't like they have to say that to justify you know obviously I'm not important I know I'm not important society has explained that to me innumerable times um I think it's reinforced by the media the media handles everything to do with reproductive rights very badly but particular particularly birth and infant feeding choices are highly designed to make women feel as if they are being selfish for having opinions there are some fabulous, most midwives and doctors um, almost all want to provide great care and came to the profession because they, they are caring people. The system that they're in is not designed to allow space and time and the kind of care that allows women to say, well, this is what I need. How can we make that happen? So when women do want to make a choice, they often have to fight for it. And then if they want to make a choice that the healthcare professionals don't feel is the right one they will often have the all that matters is a healthy baby well we don't want to you know compromise the health of your baby discussion and that's often done in a in a a very sort of emotionally manipulative way so I think it's being reinforced to women at a number of different levels in the system and uh, socially and and in the media Uh, and it seems completely normal you know, to most people now, if you say all that matters is a healthy baby, not many people get cross about that unless you're in, in you know, uh, the rarefied world of um, midwives and doulas and obstetricians who are thinking about that in a kind of critical way. You know, I was there with my tiny baby. I was having a lot of feeding problems. I was in pain. I got this giant episiotomy. I'd had this horrendous thing happen to me that I couldn't stop thinking about. I was having flashbacks about, you know, I'd really felt like a piece of meat. and And then... I would begin to sort of tell somebody, family or friends or the midwife visiting me, I'd tell them a sort of snippet of the story. And the response I would get is this, well, you know, oh, that's terrible. But, you know, at least you've got your healthy baby. That's all that matters. And that would silence them pretty effectively. Um, And um, it's incredibly damaging to women and to the families that they're then trying to build. I'm thinking about that scenario where the alternative response from the midwife is that she gets into a long conversation. She actually sits down and cares and perhaps she doesn't have time. Absolutely. Again, you know, I think it's very easy to make these conversations sound critical of individual, individual healthcare practitioners. And, you know, the more I get to know those who are working in the system the more I'm full of admiration for them and realize that I just couldn't do it um and yeah if you've got a if you've got a 10 minute appointment you've got a huge caseload you're you're doing on sort of day three postnatal visits can you open that can of worms probably not would it be nice to be able to say to the woman look I can see this was a difficult experience I don't have time to pay that enough attention right now but we can schedule you with an appointment with X person, the birth after thought service, the counselling service, and you can really explore it then. That would be great. Mm. Um, but again, resources aren't designed that way. And, and and I don't feel at the moment, postnatal visits, and you were saying the same about health visitors, the idea of keeping the mother safe in terms of her emotional well-being, that's kind of been lost. Um, so that's not a priority. That's not something that midwives have at the top of their incredibly long to-do list. Yeah, with antenatal classes, I, um, when we talk about birth, I ask them what's what's what matters, what's important to you, what, what what's going to make a positive birth for you, and they say a healthy baby, and I yeah. say let's look at the statistics. Why are you setting the bar so low? Yeah. So what what levels of risk are we really talking about? Well, the the birthplace in England study, which is I guess the most the, the biggest and most recent and most robust thing to to look at 
confirmed that giving birth in England was incredibly safe for all women and all babies, wherever they give birth and whatever choices they make. Now, I'm going to forget the figures off the top of my head, but um, it was under 1% of births that recorded a bad outcome. A bad outcome was not a, a stillborn baby. There were so few um, stillborn babies in that study of nearly 70,000 women that, that they, they couldn't report on that. So they included um, babies who had some trauma from, from birth, some of which would leave no um, lasting um, damage and some of which would leave some serious damage. So less than 1% of babies in the UK, I think it was 0.3 something um, in hospital and um, midwife-led units and second-time mothers at home and um, a slightly higher number for first-time mothers having home births. So they're very reassuring statistics. There's an interesting paper written by Susan Bewley and her colleague looking at the point at which the interventions we make to uh, minimise risk actually start to create risk. Um, and I also talked to um, the wonderful obstetrician Amali Lokugamaj, who explained that we can design the most fabulous system in the world, um, but there will always be an element of risk. We're not going to make childbirth risk-free. It's just never going to happen. We can make it incredibly tiny risk which has happened but it's never going to be risk-free and and I think you're right in kind of implying that we're we do say to women that we have this fabulous system use it and everything will be great do what we say follow the path that we've told you to follow take the right tests give birth where we say listen to the good doctor and everything will be fine and 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 actually you know there are risks at every at every you know, choice you make, there are some tiny little risks. And I think we could do with being a bit more honest with women about that because um, women feel cheated by the system when something goes wrong that they weren't expecting. Mm. Um, and, and I understand that because it's certainly not framed in, in a way that suggests that, that there will be a risk, whatever you do, even if you do do exactly what you're told. Yeah, and it's very hard to talk to people antenatally in that language. It is. But perhaps that's because we've been infantilizing pregnant women for so long we've forgotten that they kind of have brains I mean pregnant women realize that you know that that is a distant possibility and I think you're right it's incredibly difficult to talk to women antenatally in a way that isn't fear-mongering I'm not sure we're providing women with the best kind of antenatal preparation if that's what they want um, and I think we should think critically about how we do that in a way that doesn't try to protect them and for me that's about finding ways to present them with information like some statistics that are very reassuring I run a home birth group and we talk about the birthplace in England study um, but when people ask about safety I quote that that study we discuss it we debate it we talk about first-time mothers and I just give them the information um, and 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 that's there they you know we talk about what a bad outcome means um, and sometimes people who come to the group have had a previous stillbirth and, and we make it okay to talk about that and we also make it okay to talk about the good things and I think the positive birth movement does that pretty yeah. well as well but I think right it's incredibly difficult you don't want to say to anybody you know there's a chance that something might go wrong um but there is a chance that something might go wrong and um I think finding ways to have honest and non 
fear-mongering conversations are, are good because that that conversation does happen then if a woman say wants to decline induction um she can find herself in a very difficult conversation with an obstetrician who's saying to her well you know the risk of your baby dying if you decline this induction is huge um you know you you're putting your baby's life at risk you know and and that's not the time to be having that that conversation about the potential um poor outcomes i think it's it 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 should be a much more rational and um evidence based and also woman based discussion not in too um obvious a way you know throughout throughout the the pregnancy i don't think we need to protect women from just the basic yeah. facts of life <laughs> and having that conversation at 41 weeks is giving her no room to maneuver at all of course not if she's you know she's desperate to give birth by that point anyway and and um you know no woman wants to do anything that's going to put her baby at risk but you know it, it, it's it's which risk um, and that that's often the discussion that isn't had mm, yeah that's an interesting way of looking at it for them so there's there's a real tension then between the personal experience of birth. This is a quote from your book, tension between the personal experience of birth and birth as a public property. Yes. <laughs> so birth has to be public property um, in that it makes sense for us to try and make childbirth as positive, as safe, as economical an experience as possible that are we are so lucky to have the NHS and the NHS has to run in a smooth and efficient way so there have to be public discussions about how to make childbirth affordable um, and, and it's such an important thing that of course there's going to be policy decisions about um, how much money is spent on different birth locations there's going to be um, discussions and debates by healthcare professionals about the evidence about safety about risk there's going to be those discussions they're going to happen and, and the discussions themselves may be problematic. The fact that we are having them, for me, is entirely sensible. If we were just ignoring this giant area um, of, of, of women's lives and the beginning of all of us, it would be ridiculous. But for me, what happens is that these the public property side of things is, is kind of where the discussion ends. Mm. And we've forgotten that fundamentally childbirth is a private, individual, and intensely um, vulnerable and important experience in the life of an individual woman. Um, and in her life, it's it's a big deal. It won't happen that often, and it has huge consequences. Um, and the public debate overshadows that. And, and I think women are made to feel that their own experience of it is either politicised by that debate or just completely negated. Um, and I think what needs to be reintroduced into the public property side of things is a great big chunk of looking at birth as an experience in the life of an individual woman. And for me, and it's something I've been speaking quite a bit about recently, and I, um, I'm really um, excited about, I'm chairing the afternoon of the St. George's physiological birth promoting normality um conference and my chair's address is going to be is it time to stop promoting normality which <laughs> might get um, <laughs> might get uh, <laughs> but you know i think we've got to stop framing the public discussions in the way that we're framing them because they do politicize individual women's experiences i think if the public discussion was about how can we design a service that fits the needs of individual women and respects their 
basic human dignity and their autonomy, everything else falls into place. Um, and um, I think because women don't want ridiculous things, you know, we haven't got loads of women who want access to bouncy castles during, you know, during birth. You know, women want generally a whole load of sensible things. Um, women's experiences and women, what women report as being important to them, things like continuity of carer and being treated with respect, um, having access to things they need, are also the things that the evidence shows makes birth safer, are also the things that show that... Um, makes uh, birth more economical for um for the um, nhs um and also interestingly uh, from the birth rights perspective are what the law and human rights principles um show that we should be doing so everything agrees if so if we can frame that public discussion in that way i think it would make a better experience for individual women who are going through those journeys but that's a big um a big shift it means ditching stuff like promoting normality per se um not not making that um a focus and that that's very difficult it also impacts on how we talk about breastfeeding i think um and um it, it, it's it's a big change in how we talk about birth um and it, it 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 will be very difficult for people to accept but i think it for me it's the answer it is a huge reframing and i can see the logic of it but i can also see where the um, almost fear comes from in admitting that women should have the autonomy to make decisions for themselves that aren't necessarily in the best interests of their baby i think there is um and there will always be women that make bad in inverted commas decisions or decisions that have bad outcomes or risky decisions there are of course plenty of examples of when healthcare professionals make bad decisions for women. Um, so one of the things that I try to do in the book is look at the consequences of placing the responsibility for making those decisions away from the woman and showing how um, giving someone else power to make that particular decision opens up a whole series of possibilities for women to be terribly disrespected abused, assaulted during birth, but then broader than that, to have their reproductive rights and choices curtailed um, and um, really reduced to kind of a, a subclass um, of, of, of humanity. And I think for me, there's no, there just isn't anyone else who can make that decision. Most women um, want to take on board recommendations um, and um, pretty much all women want a, a, a safe and positive outcome for themselves. Um, so I don't think we need to be frightened that there's going to be, you know, millions of women making incredibly risky choices. But women do still, within the current system, make choices that come with um, an uncomfortable level of risk for some people. For me, a lot of times when that happens, it's that, that women are not making a positive, empowered decision, but are, are making a decision that comes from fear because they know they're going to be coerced into something that they don't want. So I'm, I'm thinking about women who have had a previous cesarean section, would quite like to be in hospital when they try for their VBAC, but the rules about what they have to do in hospital for them um, are reminding them of the terrible experience they had last time, or they feel are going to minimise their chances of having the vaginal birth that they want. So they feel, um, they, they ask if they can use the birth centre, they're told no, they're asked if they could use a pool and a telemetry monitor and they're told it's not ready. And so they're then in the stark choice between having their baby at home with um, midwives who may not be supportive um, or no midwife at all, 
and or going into um, this environment they don't feel is safe. And for me, that's not freedom of choice. That's that's women who may um, make a decision that the risk on either side is too great for them. And there would have been a, a, a compromise in the middle that they would have felt comfortable with, but that's just not an option that, that's being offered to them. Yeah. So I think that the current system also promotes a level of behaviour that, that, that could be described as risky. And um, I, don't, I don't think we, we need to be afraid of, of women taking those risks on themselves. Um, women are sensible creatures and, um, and, and most of them will, will assess the risk and, and, and do what they feel you know, is right for themselves with um, excellent advice and support from, from the people who um, have the clinical expertise to, to do that. So we've kind of circled back to where we started, where it's about respect for women, giving yeah. sensible evidence-based information yeah. and framing it, you know, being realistic. I think so. I mean... And honest. Yeah. Honest, realistic, compassionate. You know, at, at the at the centre of it all is um, ensuring a woman really understands what's happening and that if she wants to do something that's kind of off the beaten track, that there is a good plan in place to support her, that she understands what the risks are. But if she does understand what those risks are, then they are her risks. At a, a reunion for an antenatal group last night, and one of the fathers turned to me and said really apologetically, you don't want to hear this, Karen, but we thought that our cesarean was really good. You, you had a good birth. Yeah. Fantastic. We all have our personal journeys, you know, whether we've had children or not ourselves, but our personal experiences around birth. So we all know what was right for us or was right for our friend or was right for our mother. We find scary. And it's very hard not to bring that to bear on other people's conversations and, and other people's decisions. You know, you know, so it's taken me a while to stop, um, you know, sort of zealot-like belief that, you know, most people should be doing that. <laughs> but the more you listen to women's stories, there's just this kernel that goes through. When women have had a positive birth, wherever it was, in whatever way, cesarean section, in the hospital, with pain relief, without pain relief, you know, they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about people being nice to them and listening to them and nobody doing anything to them without their permission and um, feeling like the human being they were before um, afterwards. And, and and that's it. That That's, for me, that's where we should stop. In, that's what we should be focusing on. Because yeah. so many women in every different kind of birth, every different choice they're making, are not having that. If, if we can get that right, can get the kind of system that can genuinely provide that, then it will provide the kind of antenatal care that allows women to make um, the choices they need to. And everything else falls into place. I think that there's a fear in people who are keen to promote normal birth that by giving that up, we kind of accept a rising cesarean section rate. And I don't think that's true because most women I speak to don't want a cesarean. Some do. And it's very important. I think if a woman wants an elective cesarean, she gets an elective cesarean. Um, and it's a very valid choice. And I think that's fine. Um, but I don't think we're opening the floodgates to millions of women wanting an elective cesarean. Um, I, I think most women, ideally, just want to have a pretty straightforward birth. That's been really interesting. And I hope that people will find that absolutely um, useful learning stuff really insightful oh it's a pleasure it's always great to talk about this um thing i um, could talk about it all day so <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much it's been really nice to talk to you okay thanks karen bye-bye bye and that's all we've got time for uh on this our fourth episode of sprogcast now sponsored by Pinter and Martin, who you can find at pinterandmartin.com.
we hope you've enjoyed it and we especially hope that you get in touch with us and give us some feedback and questions and all that kind of stuff. Um, you can find us at facebook.com forward slash Sprogcast and we're going to promise the next episode for... Sometime in July. Sometime in July. You know, we are aiming to get these out every month. Uh, but the task of uh, recording the interviews and editing um, is a big one, but we're working on it. So it's goodbye from me, Mark Harris. Oh, it's goodbye from me. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Editing and production is by Karen with technical assistance from Pete. Find us on facebook.com slash sprogcast.